Thank you, Alyssa. Well, good morning again. Again, Happy New Year. Wonderful to be together. Uh, I love this time of year where we live because, um, I mean, look, the weather is just amazing. It's wonderful to be here. And it's good to be uh, in worship together, to be starting off 2020, actually gathering together to celebrate the foundation of everything that we do, to, found, to celebrate even the story that we're brought into. That's what we're going to talk about today, what it means to understand the big story and our even small part in it. We uh, have been, during Advent, before Christmas, we were looking at the first and the second chapter of Luke. We're still in Luke. We're going to continue to study Luke until Easter. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 2. It's also uh, printed in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along there. This is uh, Luke chapter 2, and I will be reading starting in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, that's Mary and Joseph, brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the wound shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple... And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, This child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not stop... She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We ask that you would speak to us this morning. That this story of Simeon and Anna of whom we never hear again in the scriptures, would remind us of the story that you've brought us into. Lord, open our hearts and our minds and our ears and open our eyes that we might see Jesus today and that in seeing him we might be changed. We do pray all of this in his name. Amen. Well, during Christmas time, my wife Joy loves to have a puzzle out. My stepmom likes the same thing. My mom likes to do the same thing. I don't know what it is about Christmas and puzzles, but for whatever reason, during the holidays, people just love to put puzzles out. And uh, I'm not really a big puzzler, 
But if you are, you know the intrigue of a puzzle, right? Is that there is this promise of something to come. There's a picture on the box right there. And then you've got to put every little piece together. And every little piece matters. If you lose a piece or if you can't find one of those edges or the dreaded corner pieces, then it's really kind of all lost and the whole picture doesn't fit together. That's true not just for puzzles. It's true for a lot of things. If you are a jazz music aficionado, uh, you'll understand that this actually takes place in jazz too. If you listen to a typical jazz song, you will hear kind of the theme introduced at the beginning. It may be the melody or just kind of the basic structure of the song. And all of the members of the group, all of the instruments, are usually locked in into that theme, playing that melody. And it's real easy to listen to. But pretty soon in a jazz song, everybody starts to kind of dissipate. And they start to kind of build on this theme on their own, breaking it down and building it back up and taking little solos and diverging this way and bouncing off of this theme and that. And at some point, sometimes in jazz, you're like, I have no idea where this is going. I don't know where I am. I'm completely lost. And right about that time, the theme comes back together. The puzzle pieces kind of come back. You see the picture of what the real story is. Well, the same is true, really, in any story, in drama at all. I listened to uh, Andrew Stanton speak, who wrote Toy Story and WALL-E and is a big part of the Pixar kind of movement. And he was talking about the building blocks of good stories. And these were the things he was talking about, is that there's got to be some sort of promise. And then that promise actually needs to be delayed so that there is anticipation and longing and even difficulty sometime. There is a promise. It's like that picture, you know, on the box. There is a promise, but there's also anticipation and uncertainty about how that promise is going to actually unfold. That's true of every story, and it's true of the Bible story. It's true of the story that we are brought into. We, in fact, are pieces of that story pieces of that puzzle that actually fit in and play our parts. And so it's appropriate for us to ask, what does it mean to play our part in the story well? What does it mean for us to take the small parts that we've been given and do them well as a part of a larger story? We see four characters actually laid out here in this, these verses that are really great example for us of what it means to play your part in the story well. Simeon and Anna, Mary and Joseph, give us a great indication of what it means to live by faith according to that big story and to know how your own story fits into it. And they are characters that are dealing a great deal with uncertainty and anticipation. The two basic building blocks of a good story are there in their lives as well. And, of course, here's the wonderful thing about anticipation and uncertainty. It's really exciting when you're watching or reading a story, right? It's not as fun when you're living it. But these guys give us a great indication of what it means to live faithfully as a part of God's bigger story. So let's look at them in pairs. We're going to look at them as couples. Simeon and Anna aren't a married couple, but we're going to look at them as couples because they're kind of coupled together. We'll look at them first, and then we'll look uh, at Joseph and Mary. The first thing that we hear, uh, we learn about both Simeon and Anna is that they are devout. They are faithful. Uh, the word blameless might be in your Bible. That doesn't mean that they are perfect. It doesn't mean that they are sinless. But it does mean that they are faithful and live according to the way that God has called them to. 
But really what marks them both is this sense of anticipation, of longing, of waiting. We read that Simeon was hanging around Jerusalem and around the temple. Now, typically the guys that are hanging around the temple are the priests. But we're not told if Simeon is a priest. He may be a priest. But actually, there's another category that fits probably better of who Simeon is, and that's prophet. We are told that the Holy Spirit is with him and that God is actually revealing things to him directly. That it's been revealed to him that he wouldn't die before he gets to see the Lord's Christ. And so he's waiting with eager anticipation of when that is going to come. Likewise, Anna, we're told, is a prophetess, which either means she herself is a prophet or she was married to a prophet. And she has been waiting for the same thing, and she has been hanging around in Jerusalem, worshiping, fasting, longing, anticipating the coming of the Christ, who is going to be the one who redeems and comforts Israel. What they are longing for, these two people who are fairly old, we read that Anna is either 84 or she's been a widow for 84 years, depending on how you interpret the grammar there. Either way, they've been waiting for a long time. And they're waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, what does that mean? Well, to get to that question, we've got to kind of go back to the bigger story. So, let me tell you a story. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and he created them good, and he created mankind to live in that good world, and he gave mankind everything that he needed, and he was with him, and he loved him, and they were together, but mankind rebelled just the way you and I would rebel in pushing off God's good rule and saying, instead of actually serving and loving and living with God, we'd rather be God's ourselves. And that actually brought all of humanity and the world into a state of brokenness, where that unity, that intimacy between God and man was broken. But even back as far as Genesis chapter 3, we get the picture on the box of the puzzle that shows us what God is going to do, that shows us the plan of God actually beginning to put the pieces back together. And that's the story of the Bible is God putting those pieces back together to work his redemptive plan in the world to bring back what was lost, to repair what was broken, to return mankind even to a greater state of intimacy with him. And so we see that first happen with a man named Abraham. And God promises Abraham that it's through him and through his family that will grow into a nation that he is going to bless the world, that he is going to bring about the redemption of all things. But as you fast forward in Genesis, you see that actually one of those promises seems to come true really quickly. Abraham and his wife have children, and they have children, and they have children, and they grow into this really great big family, in fact, even a nation. But when you open up the book of Exodus, you see that mm, they're slaves in a different nation. How is God going to fulfill his promise? How are we going to get to that picture on the front of the puzzle box if they're enslaved in another nation? anticipation, uncertainty, longing. But then, of course, God does rescue his people. He brings them out of Israel, of of Egypt with a mighty hand. He brings them through the Sinai Desert. He brings them into a land even where he promises them two really important things. I'm going to give you this place for you to glorify me and to bless the rest of the world. I'm going to settle you here, and I'm going to come and be with you. I'm going to move in. I'm going to live with you. 
a lot like it was in the beginning. And we have this incredible promise of God putting the pieces back together. But of course, like any good story, there is anticipation, there is uncertainty, because God's people, just like you and I, aren't very good at keeping his covenant promises. And so they rebel over and over and over. They leave. They wander away. They tell God, really, it's better if we just did this on our own. And they follow other gods. And then over and over, God raises up saviors to save them from the people who want to conquer them, brings them back to himself, and then they leave again. He does this with judges. He does this with kings over and over and over until finally, at the end of the historical books in the Bible, we find God's people without a land in captivity one more time in Babylon and without God's presence, with the temple destroyed. And there's this huge question mark in the story. Have we kind of thrown away the the box top for the puzzle? Is that picture of the good ending gone forever? Well, if you begin to read through the prophetic books, what you hear is this whisper over and over and over of the story's not over. There's more to the story. God is actually going to do something to rescue his people. He is going to bring about a redeemer. He's going to bring about a real and good and true king. He is going to come and be present with his people one more time in this way, in a way that nobody's ever seen before. Simeon and Anna are waiting for that to happen. They are waiting for God's words of promise to ring true. They are waiting in eager anticipation for the redemption of all things and for God to actually put all of those pieces of that puzzle back together. I think it's a good time for us to pause and ask the question, uh, how good are we at waiting? How good are we at at waiting on God to do what he says he's going to do? I was watching with my family this documentary uh, cooking show the other day, and uh, the the salt, fast, fat, acid, heat, anybody seen this or read the book? It's really wonderful. Uh, In the salt part, actually, she's in Japan talking about how miso is made. And she's with this old woman who's making miso, and she makes it in this pot, and she says, okay, now we kind of have to let it ferment, and we're going to put it, you know, in this pot and let it rest for a little while. She says, okay, great. How long do we let it rest? And the lady says, about three years. Three years? That's waiting. And it just hit all of us like, oh, my goodness. Like, I can't wait three minutes for my computer to start up. I can't wait three seconds sometimes for somebody to text me back when I text them. Three years, that's unbelievable. We live in a culture of immediacy, of instant gratification, of I have a need, I have a question, I get it answered immediately. I have something I want, I go get it. I buy it. I get it. It doesn't matter if I have the money. I buy it on the credit card. I don't have to wait for anything. But that's actually not the way that God has made things to be. He has called us into a story that is going somewhere, a story that has a good ending, but a story that's continuing. And oftentimes he calls us to wait. Maybe you've just wrestled with that question, when? When will I actually get a job that is not so terrible? When will I stop dealing with this thing with this child? 
When will my relationships actually finally feel whole? When will I have a friend? When will I not feel so lonely? When will I stop struggling with this one thing that I've been struggling with for the last 25 years? You know, so oftentimes a part of playing our part in the story well is waiting, anticipation, and uncertainty. Living by faith, the ability to say, I don't know when that happens, and I'm okay, because God knows. All right, let's turn to the second couple, Mary and Joseph. They're they're the famous ones in this passage. And they're also a couple that's dealing with those same things, anticipation and uncertainty. They are anticipating what in the world is going to happen in their lives. If you've forgotten, Mary just gave birth to the Son of God. That brings a lot of questions up, doesn't it? How in the world is this going to play out for the rest of our lives? There's a lot of uncertainty. They're not sure what's going to happen. They're they're not even sure how they're going to get home, right? Remember, the other king who thinks he's the king in power wants to kill them and wants to kill this child. That's Herod's agenda. So there's tons of uncertainty and anticipation and questions of what to do. How do they go about living with this anticipation and uncertainty? How do they go about doing their life in the midst of this? Well, here's the answer is that they do pretty normal stuff. I know that sounds weird. They've got the Son of God living in their house. How could things be normal ever? But really, what Mary and Joseph do is normal, everyday life. We read here that they have traveled to Jerusalem, to the temple, to participate in a sacrifice and to bring their firstborn son to be consecrated, to be, made, to be given, you know, over to the Lord. Well, this wasn't something special that Mary and Joseph said, you know, it would be great if we did this really amazing thing and if we like kind of went the next level and kicked it up a notch and went to Jerusalem and did this whole consecration thing. It wasn't something special. That was the thing that every Israelite mother, when they gave birth to a firstborn son, that's what they were supposed to do. God's law actually outlines this in Leviticus, that when there is the firstborn son, that as an act of saying all of our life belongs to you, including my family and my heritage, they come to the temple and they present that son there and they sacrifice as as a way of saying to the Lord, all of my life actually belongs to you. Mary and Joseph are doing exactly that. If you had the means, you would bring a lamb to sacrifice at the temple. If you were poor, like Mary and Joseph are, you would bring two doves, turtle doves or pigeons, and they would be the sacrifice. They're doing the regular, everyday, put one foot in front of the other stuff that is the way that God works. Let me me say that again in a different way. God actually goes to work in the regular, small activities of our lives. In fact, I would say more often than not, it is not the big, powerful moments that lead to deep change in us. It's actually the little steps taken over and over and over and over. That's actually what changes us. That's the way that God has chosen to work most of the time is in the little, regular, everyday stuff. Do you believe that, that God is actually at work when you're bathing children, 
when you are at work doing expense reports, when you are eating family meals together, when you're going to bed and waking up and putting one foot in front of the other and doing the things that God has put before you to do, God actually works through those things. This is a new year, and it is the time where so many of us are making resolutions and goals and writing things down. I got to say, I'll just be honest, I'm usually pretty cynical about those things. And it's not because I don't like goals. (laughs) I'm actually really good at at, at making goals. I'm just not any good at all at fulfilling them, (laughs) actually doing what I say that I want to do. So I get pretty cynical sometimes about resolutions and big plans and that sort of thing. But I am becoming more and more convinced that it's actually the regular habits of our lives that lead to the deepest change in us. I just finished reading this book that I would really recommend to all of you. It's called The Common Rule. And it's really just a book about that concept, how regular practices habits form and shape our hearts. We've talked about this before. In fact, one of our values in worship is that worship should not only be expressive, meaning what comes from our heart actually comes to our lips, but worship should also be formative, meaning what we put on our lips and in our bodies shapes and forms our hearts. That is the same with our regular practices. And here's the thing is that Our regular practices, the habits that drive our lives, shape our beliefs. That is true. That is not a Christian concept. That is just a true human concept. So the regular habits that we participate in are shaping some sort of belief in us. I want to just read you um, from this author how he talks about those beliefs being shaped in his heart and the former practices and habits that he had and the beliefs that were being shaped. Listen and see if maybe you even identify with some of these. Habit. Look at work emails on my phone before getting out of bed. Belief that it shapes. I can miss a quiet time, but I can't miss a quick response. Unless I'm well regarded in the office, I'm not worth anything. You could say the same thing for looking at social media first thing in the morning. Right? The belief it shapes is unless I'm on top of everything and I know what's going on with everybody in the world, then I don't really have value. This one, habit. If a manager asks for something late in the day or an unrealistic deadline, I always say yes. If a social invite comes up, I always go for it. The belief that it shapes. I will become the best version of myself by expanding my options. So I can't say no. I may be tired and busy, my family may be exhausted by my unpredictability, but if I don't preserve my choice, then I can't be who I really am. Habit. Even when I sense all of the above is getting out of control, even when the best word to describe my life is scattered or busy, I resist any rules that would restrict technology use and work schedules. Belief that it shares. Belief that it shapes. To limit myself is to restrict my freedom. And I'm not fully human without my freedom of choice in every moment. The good life comes from choosing what you want. He goes on to say these very powerful words, but what if the good life doesn't come from having the ability to do what we want, but from having the ability to do what we were made for? 
What if true freedom comes from choosing the right limitations, not avoiding all limitations? What he's talking about is just regular stuff. Putting one foot in front of the other. Getting up. Opening God's word. Being in worship. Being with God's people. Eating. Talking. Praying. Those are the things that shape our hearts. When Joseph and Mary come to the temple to present Jesus, that action is shaping in them a belief. God cares for us. We belong to him. He is going to make all things right. All right, we've talked about the four characters that we see in this story, but we're actually leaving uh, one very important one out. In fact, the primary character, and just FYI, the primary character in all of Scripture is, of course, the Lord. And in fact, it's the entirety of the Trinity that shows up all throughout this passage. Did you notice that? Simeon and Anna are both praying to the Lord, to the Father, but we're told the Holy Spirit was actually present there with Simeon, empowering him. And of course, the Son is there as well. We have Father, Son, and Spirit all present all over this passage. And what we're seeing actually throughout all of this is that even as God's people, these four characters here, are being faithful to what he has called them to, it is all a proclamation of God's faithfulness. It's God who is the one who is being ultimately faithful in all of this. Simeon and Anna are proclaiming the coming of the kingdom. But guess what? God is actually making the kingdom come in their midst. He has revealed to them the king. He has brought the king onto the scene. God is doing that. Joseph and Mary are doing the regular everyday stuff. They're doing the stuff that they were called to. They were poor, so they brought pigeons or turtle doves to be sacrificed because they couldn't afford a lamb. Guess what? God brought the lamb, didn't he? God provided the lamb as he always does. God is showing up on the stage as the one who is making all things new, who is doing what none of these people could. Though they are actually faithful participants, God is the hero of the story. It is Jesus who has come to be with his people, closer even than we could imagine, to take on our flesh, to eventually take on our sin. They are fulfilling the requirements of the law, but it's actually Jesus who would come to fulfill the entirety of the law so that he might live the life that we couldn't and then die actually the death that we deserve. They bring a sacrifice, but they've actually brought the perfect sacrifice, because that's what God has provided. Let me just close by asking this question. Two questions, actually. The way that we respond to this is in two ways. First of all, it's the question, do we know the story? Do we know the big story? It, if all of this sounds unfamiliar to you, I would love to talk with you about this. If all of this sounds like it may be too good to be true, I would love to chat with you about it. But if you have known this story for some time, let me just remind you, it's in knowing it more deeply that we get changed, that our hearts actually change. I know I said I get cynical about resolutions, but it is a new year. It's a great time to start a Bible reading plan if you've never done that. Just little bits. Just spend 5 to 15 minutes a day reading God's word and praying. Make that the habit for you, and I guarantee you, your heart will change. 
That's the first question, do we know the story? Second question is like it, is do we know our part in the story? And are we playing it well? And let me remind you that it's the little parts. It's the little parts that we get to play. The regular everyday stuff that matters. The regular everyday stuff that God actually uses to be putting those pieces back together again, to be making a whole. So that his picture, him as the hero of the story, begins to come into focus for us. That's our hope as Christians, is that we are simply those playing our part so that the hero can be the hero. He does the big things. We get to do the small things. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful um, for your story and for the wonderful and astounding truth that we have been brought into it. Lord, you have... um, You have done for us something astounding to take on our flesh so that we might be healed. Lord, with these words of Simeon, we can rejoice that we can go in peace now because we have seen your salvation. We have seen the consolation of Israel and the hope for the Gentiles. That's us. We've seen this hope, and now we get to rejoice in this hope and play our parts in response. Will you empower us to do so by the power of your spirit this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.